media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. As you're seated this morning, open your Bibles to Revelation 21, starting with verse 9. Any Braves fans here? Atlanta Braves? Uh, big Braves fan. Um, you know, if you know this guy by the name of Acuna, uh, he did something pretty much, he, he just set a record that has never been done before, you know, to combine 30 home runs and over 60 RBI, I mean, 60 stolen bases in one year. And uh, first time in all of history, you know, uh, you can't say that Babe Ruth did it. You can't say that Ty Cobb did it. You can't say that this person did it or that person did it. He's the first person to ever do it. And yet I was talking to somebody the other day, and, and it just got me. This is our human nature, okay? This is our human nature. Yeah, but you know, they made those bases a half inch bigger. And so it's easier to steal that many bases today. I'm just sitting there going, okay, an inch or inch and a half or whatever it is, you know, the bases are a little bit bigger this year, okay? But I don't know how many stolen bases Acuna has this year that he would not have gotten because of half inch or an inch or whatever that measurement is. But it demonstrated to me the nature of man, you know, that we can see something spectacular. We can see something that whether you're a baseball fan or not to at least go, man, this, this guy's done something unique. It's never been done in all the years of baseball, all the thousands of players. This is the first guy to ever do this. And so it has its uniqueness. And yet, yeah, but. And sometimes I think we have that attitude even with heaven, guys. That this human nature, remember, we've said that most of our questions about heaven are on this very horizontal level because this is where we live. This is the only thing I've ever experienced. And so it's hard for me right now, we can sing about it, but to truly know how blessed we will be, how full we'll be, as we look back last week, how satisfied we will be in the holiness of God. Every fiber of our being, every part of our existence will be compelled to worship, not forced to us. It will be compelled. You will just say, wow. I mean, I dare you to go to, uh, years ago, my dad was not a NASCAR fan. Okay, and, and yet somebody invited him to go to Talladega, and so he went over to you know and watched Talladega. He came back, the biggest NASCAR fan, you know, for a day, you know, because you go, man, this is just. And he said, you can't. You get in that environment, and all of a sudden you're excited, whether you know anything about it or not. Years ago, I was able to take Carly. Uh, I guess we've been twice, uh, you and I, to the Masters. And she's, you know, she's watched golf. She understands the concept of golf, uh, not the frustration of golf because she doesn't play, but she understands some of that. But we went out to Masters, and oh my goodness, the rest of the week, she's tuning in. We did not miss, except for church, but we didn't miss a single moment because there's something about being there, you get captivated. Does that make sense to y'all? Whether you're golf fans, whether you're Braves fans or not, that sometimes, uh, NASCAR fans or not, that sometimes you get in the environment and everything in that environment compels you from within to go, yeah, Ricky Bobby, yeah, or whatever it is, you know, that somehow you're excited about what you're seeing before you. Folks, it, what a, what a tainted version that is of how you and I will be for, for the throne. That the holiness of God, there won't be work, there won't be effort, there will be the joy of that. 
But every fiber of our being, every part of us, every molecule, every synapse, every thought that we've ever had will just be compelled. Holy, holy, holy. It's the Lord God Almighty. And until that day, as we've studied week after week here lately, you know, we, we work through, we look at the mirror dimly. We, we look and we only get a part of that, but the part that we get should give us encouragement. And that's what I prayed that we would get today. I, again, when I started this week, I thought that we would go 9 through 27 because it's kind of one big thought, but it's a very long thought. And I, there was two choices there, either separate into our two-hour sermon. I took a quick poll. I called three people, two-hour sermon or two sermons, every one of them, two sermons. Nobody wanted to sit here for two hours. I'm kidding on that. Um, but I know the poll results would have been... And so this morning, we are going to just kind of put our toes in the edge of this. But it's all a description of heaven. And if there's something that fascinates our very fiber of our being and our soul, it's, what's heaven going to be like? Again, a lot of times we're always thinking this. We're thinking very much on that horizontal level instead of the spiritual level. And yet we do get a little bit of a description here. And yet that's where we also run into a little bit of difficulty. When we began this whole series in Revelation, I've said that any time that I preach on Revelation, I always kind of warn the crowd to, to begin with that, um, you know, it's hard to know how to properly handle the word of revelations, a revelation. And, 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 you know, is it literal? Is it symbolic? That's probably one of the main complexities of the book of Revelation is, okay, is this meant to be literal, a thousand years, or is it symbolic? Are we already in the millennial period? And he's just talking about this. And, and people that you value and that you respect as scholars, as pastors, as students of the word, if you ask 10 of them, I, I told you sometimes you're going to get 11 answers. Because there's going to be that one person goes, I, I think it could be this or it could be that. It's really hard. And, and we're going to see that in this passage this morning. Because there's a, a part of it... Um, you know, that, that really begins to say, okay, is this literally like this? When he starts giving us the measurements of heaven next week, you know, is it really that big? Why isn't it bigger? Oh, that's really huge. We're confused. And we really miss the point. So what we try to do when we study Revelation is, what can we take away from it that we know for sure? That whether it's symbolic or literal, that we know for sure. And and some of those things God just gives us. Last week, if you weren't here, I realize a lot of people were out for Labor Day last week. But uh, we looked at what God said. Most of Revel- in Rev- the book of Revelation, uh, he gets an angel to say things. And today we're going to see that an angel is saying some things. But there's a, a passage that we covered last week where God said something. And he said, these things are trustworthy and true. And so we went down and we began to look. What is it that God said is trustworthy and true? And we began to look at those things. And the fourth one, three were really good. You know, no more battles. Can you imagine not facing battle when you wake up in the morning? Uh, another one was that you're going to be fully satisfied. You won't know. You know, Keith Richards can't get no satisfaction. You won't, you won't know that. No, total satisfaction. And now we can't even imagine that in our hearts and our minds. But there was a fourth one that was there last week, and that is the reality of hell. And, and I'm still surprised in this day and time that there are so many people that just want to rip out any mention of hell. 
or think that hell is just this fictitious place, and yet they're so willingly to uh, to absorb it and agree with heaven. And, and folks, we can't do that. We can't just pick and choose what the Bible says. God said that it's trustworthy and true. What? That there's a hell. And In fact, let's just start there this morning. Let's go back to verse 8 and start there. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And the reason I'm going to come back there is because I think I maybe shocked some people last week and maybe brought disagreement, and that's fine. I don't mind disagreeing at all. You can be wrong. I can be wrong. You know, it's one of those things. It's part of the discussion, part of the study, part of being a disciple. But I said last week, I don't know that it's really going to be a, a, a lake that burns with fire and sulfur. The absence of God, the absence of the grace of God, the presence of God is really the hurting point here. It, it may have lake of fire. I don't know if that's symbolism or if that's, and, and I'm, it just, if you repress me to one side or the other, I do believe that since it says it, I'm going to take it kind of literally and that it is you know, the gnashing of teeth, it is extreme, you know, the, the heat of heaven, the fires of heaven, the sulfur of heaven. But folks, that's, that's this. When we look at hell, it's this. We don't have God. We don't have the mercy of God. We don't have the grace of God. We don't have anything about God. We're separated from God. And even though it's hard for us to understand it now, because we think lake of fire and sulfur, oh my goodness, I promise this right here is worse than any lake of fire and sulfur. But it presents the problem that we have with Revelation. Is this literal? Is this symbolic? And and when it goes back to something like a fiery hell, I don't want to be there. If that's just an earthly description that we can relate to right now, I don't want any part of that. And yet the spiritual significance of that, I think, is so much more than the physical torment. There will be physical torment. Gnashing of teeth. And yet you and I do not know what it's like to be separated from a holy God. The worst unbeliever, if you want to use that term, the the person who would deny the existence of God here on earth has been the recipient of common grace in their life. They they live in a world that was designed by God, even though sin now has brought a, a taint to that, that he will perfect. Our own human bodies now have the taint of that sin. And yet they're still the recipients of this remarkable thing that we were made and crafted together in wonder. We cannot even begin to imagine. No man can imagine what this, the hell that on the spiritual level of being separated from God is like. But here's what we do gain from that. As we were sitting last week, I, I hope that you got at least this. Not everybody goes to heaven. I, I get that you get a place that it's a, heaven is, a, I mean, I'm sorry, uh, hell is a place of great torment and, and God is not there. And it's the fullness of death. Just as heaven is what? The fullness of life. Do you have life right now? Yeah. But it's a tainted life. 
I mean, I'm not pulling any one person out in particular. I'm just saying, you know, what we have right now is a tainted version of it because of the rebellion of man. But in heaven, we will have the fullness of life. And I do believe that one good description of hell is that we will have the fullness of death. And so that's where we struggle. That's what makes this book of Revelation difficult at times because we struggle between, is this literal, is it symbolic, is it happening now, or is it something that's going to happen later? If if you study theology, you can get into the historical, the preterist, the futurist, the uh, idealist versions of eschatology. And if you have discussion on any of those things afterwards, I'd... Well, I've got life group afterwards, but during the week, give me a call and we can talk about all those things. They're interesting things. Good fodder. And yet today, how can you be encouraged? How can you be strengthened? And how can you uh, be called into holiness today because of the word of God without knowing what a preterist view is? without knowing the idealistic view of eschatology, without knowing all these big theological things, can we look at the Word of God today and go, here's how I am to live this day out? Bottom line, isn't that really kind of the main essential thing? Or would you rather sit around and act like we're really smart people and use all these long terms? And all of us wonder with big question marks, which one is real? When we look at these verses this morning, we see this dilemma. Uh, this angel begins to describe heaven. He gives colors and wall and gates and all these different things like this and size. And the question that comes up is, okay, is this literal or is this symbolic? Is it really literally this size that it says? It's pretty precise there. Because we're going to find out that it's talking about a new Jerusalem, but it's also describing the bride of Christ. Who's the bride of Christ? The church, the redeemed, the body of Christ. We're we're the bride of Christ. And and yet when we get into the scripture, we begin to say, okay, pearly gates. Like we're going to see gates of pearl today. And how many of you at least once in your life, at least once in your life, have said something along the lines of, well, you know, when I stand before the pearly gates, how many of y'all have done that at least once? Whether you were joking or not, where did that term come from? The Bible. But do we know the fullness of that? I don't know. Are there really going to be pearly gates? Is Peter going to be sitting there going, Bobby, 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 no, but can't find you. Are you were good? Are you a little too late? See, we, we, once you build upon a fallacy, guys, once you build upon an untruth, the only thing that really kind of follows that is other untruths. Does that make sense? And so we want to get this right. We don't want a Hollywood version of heaven. We don't want to have a Hollywood eschatology. We want a biblical version. And so open your Bibles. And look what it says in Revelation 21, verse 9 through 11. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the, the bride. And who is the bride? The wife of the lamb. Everybody see that. Okay, And the angel said this. I don't think this angel is... Spreading untruths. I don't think that this is a 
defiant angel going, okay, I'm going to give them, uh, you know, confusion here. No. I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Verse 10. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, its radiance like the most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. So, so which is it, guys? Is uh, Verse 9, it says that he's going to show him the bride of Christ. And then in verse 10, he says, I'm going to show you the holy city, Jerusalem. Okay? So we're going to take a quick test. No, we're not. Because nobody would have raised their hand on either one. But, but you answer silently in your own mind, okay? Which one? Now, let me add a little weight to that. If you get this wrong, you don't get to go to heaven. You get this wrong. You pick the wrong one. I mean, there's at least a 50-50 chance, right? Right of Christ. Is that going to be the description here? Or, or the new Jerusalem? So you answer and you raise your own hand internally, okay? How many of you think the bride of Christ? How many of you think that he's going to describe the new Jerusalem? Folks, I'm not trying to dumb down the scripture. I'm not trying to make it say something. But but here's my my understanding of this whole thing. Is he talking about the bride or is he talking about the city? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. He's using it metaphorically. He's using it, I think, some literally. He's using it. Both are correct. But what if you were asked that question... And your entrance into heaven was all based upon you making the right choice on that particular question. And if you got it wrong, then you just don't get to go to heaven. Here's my fear, guys. That's how sometimes we treat the book of Revelation. That if you don't agree with what I say, then you must not be saved. Or if you get it wrong, somehow you don't get the eternal riches of the glory of God. And nowhere do we find that, guys. And so I'm not trying to water down Scripture. I'm not saying that we should not be uh, students of the Word. I'm just saying, thank God that as we read this, He's already said there's a blessing to those who read it. Did He say a blessing to all of those who fully understand and comprehend every single thing in the book of Revelation? Is that what the beginning of the book said? No. He said there's a blessing in reading this. And I think there's a blessing in discussing it. I love good debate, if you want to use that word, of, of man, but does it mean this or, or mean that? But guys, let's not make it a factor of salvation. That somehow if we just thought, you know, rapture and then millennial years and we have this timeline and then somebody else says, no, we're already in the millennial, let's not make it a matter of salvation. Let's make it a matter of information that can guide us. And guide us how? To be pious people think that we know it and we've figured it all out? No, to be humbled that God would even allow us and have this plan for the ages so that in that humility of the grace that he shows us that we would be thirsty for God and we would long to tell others about Jesus. That's the purpose, guys. That's the purpose. And you missed that purpose. And I believe you've missed the whole point of Revelation. 
So what is the answer? In my understanding, it's the bride in the city. He's not trying to confuse there. But when he talks about the bride of Christ, has, does the Bible ever use a city to symbolize a mentality and a people? Think about Babylon. What's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of Babylon in the Bible? Good or bad? Bad. <laughs> the people of Babylon. Now, now get this. Was Babylon a real city? Yeah. Was there this kind of... Uh, thought that we have about the people of Babylon, that they're not followers of God. Yes. And so we see that, yes, it was a real city, but we also see that the people of Babylon represented a certain mindset. And I think that's one of the keys here is that we begin to understand that he says, okay, I, I will show you the bride of Christ, a people. But I, I believe that it very much could be a literal place too. I believe that it's literal and it's symbolic. You know, let's not be lazy students of the word. Let's not say that it doesn't matter. Let's see the majesty and the glory that is described. So go to verse 11. Having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. This place, these people are filled with the glory of God. And in a way, we could stop right there. Because I promise you that once we get this right, this doesn't matter. And this right here is saying you and I are going to be in the presence of the glory of God. We're going to know God as he is. We're going to see Jesus face to face. The glory of God is going to be everywhere in the presence of heaven. We will be in that presence. And I promise you at that point, these things will not matter. Because the glory of God overrides that. Verse 9 said that this is the new Jerusalem coming down from, or coming down out of heaven from God. God is the builder. He's the architect. He's the one that's putting all this together, both the literal place and the symbolism of the people of God. I mean, we go back in the Bible, we can find out that this originated very, very early on. Remember a guy by the name of Abraham? Look what the New Testament says about the faith of Abraham, the journey, the wandering of Abraham, and his longings, okay? Hebrews 11, verse 8 through 10. Let's go to Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham believed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, what? Not knowing where he's going. So God didn't give him the whole plan. God said, go. What did Abraham do? He went. And he started, and Sarah's freaking out. They're leaving family. There's great sacrifice there. But Abraham is count, he's counted his faith here because he believes God. He doesn't know where he's going. He's going out. Verse 9. By faith, he went to live in a land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him on the same promise. Now look at verse 10. For he was looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Don't miss this, guys. God calls Abraham to go out to a place. Is God in that? Yes. 
Does he show Abraham the full plan? No. And in a way, we see that Abraham is kind of nomadic because what in this scripture shows more of a nomadic life? Tents. You camp. You pick it up. You go a little bit more. And you put down the tent again for a while. How many of you say that that pretty much describes your life symbolically? A tent. You know, the Bible even says that these bodies are like an earthly tent. It's not a permanent dwelling. It's a temporary dwelling. And some of us have big tents. And some of us have small tents. But we have tents. Uh, Pastor, are you just playing with these words? No, I think there's great symbolism here, guys. When he says that you're going to go, that heaven is a place of foundation, he's talking about a place that has permanence. Right now, guys, you and I, every single day, we're wanderers, we're living in tents. And sometimes we'll pitch our tent in Georgia and other times it's going to be pitching our tent here. Sometimes we're pitching our tent and work at Publix and other times it's, we're going to work at this place. Sometimes we're involved here and other times we're involved here. Sometimes we go to church at Cornerstone. Other times we may go to church over here. We're living nomadic lives. Would you agree spiritually that we're nomads? The promise here that he's called to his place of permanence, place of foundation. And it's a place of permanence that God himself has orchestrated and built and constructed. How many of you would buy a house from me if I built it? Now I'm kind of discouraged. <laughs> and you'd be foolish if you had your hand up right now. And if all of a sudden Heath is going to build a house, I'm going, okay, now I've got a little bit more confidence. But Heath would go, no, 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 I can play around with some things, but I don't know from start to finish if I really want that whole chore. And we would have a certain level of expectation. We would have a, a certain level of appreciation knowing that we had the world's best architect, designer, and builder. Or if we had somebody goes, I've never built a house before, but I'll try. One of the things that God, I believe, is trying to communicate to us in this first part is not for us so much go, okay, now, again, how big is this city and all these measurements? We're going to get to that next week. But what he's trying to say, there's a place that has foundation. There's a place of permanence here. Nomads. We're wandering right now. Remember last week we said, can you even imagine a day without facing a battle? No, because we face battles every day. We have victories over battles, and those are good days. Yes, won today. Victory. W column. But what about the days that it's in the L column and we lost? And yet this is our lives. We battle. And one of the things we saw last week is the battle is over. Jesus said, it is finished. And what did God say last night, uh, last week? It is done. There's a permanence. By God. 
God himself, there's a permanence. The finished work of Christ, everything that I ever needed to be saved has already been done by Jesus Christ. Theologically, there is now therefore no condemnation for me because I'm in Christ Jesus. And yet, today and tomorrow, I will, I will face failure and sin, and I will even condemn myself. Can you relate to that? I'm as saved as I'm ever going to get, and yet I won't know the fullness of that until heaven. And then there's a permanence of this. The, the, the finished work is already completed that's necessary, but the fullness of that experience will not be here until we get to heaven. We have a lot of new families in our church, and um, as far as you have young ones, little baby boys and little baby girls. Could anything have prepared you for the experience of motherhood and fatherhood? I mean, you had illustrations around you. Don't want to be like them. <laughs> Hope I get one like that. You know, you had your picking and choosing. But nobody could have ever told you until that day or that night that you held that child in your arms and go, okay, this is all of a sudden dad mode, mom mode. The experience was there. And that's what we see here in this promise. Don't miss this, Christian. We're now living in tents. We are wanderers, but there's a city that has foundations of permanence that God himself has built and designed. Look at verse 12 and 14. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and the gates 12, and at the gates 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed, and on the east three gates, and on the north three gates, and on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the walls of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the apostles of the Lamb. Do you see permanence in this? I mean, you have to look a little bit, but are they intense? Or is he saying, okay, this has a foundation. In fact, it has 12 foundations. This number 12 is, is a favorite of God's because it shows God's order. We see 12 uh, tribes of Israel. We see 12 disciples. 12 usually means order, authority, organization. When you see the number 12, when you think about you know, the 144,000, when you begin to, you know, all these kind of numbers are 12 by 12, and they become uh, symbolic in nature. And yet he uses this number 12 to show that he is in authority and that he is completing his design. Uh, some of the ladies that are going through the numbers study right now on Wednesday night. Go back and look at Numbers chapter 2. This is really cool. You know, remember when God brought the tabernacle there and they were all camped around the tabernacle? Guess how they camped out, the 12 tribes? Three on the east, three on the west, and three in the north, three in the south. Go back and read it. And in the middle was the tabernacle. In the middle was this symbolism of the of God. God cannot be contained in one place, but there, there they had the tabernacle and the holy place, and inside the holy place, the holy of holies. And all this was symbolism, and it was yet it was kind of a literal thing for them because they could actually see this tabernacle. Is the presence of God. 
Do we have that picture that I'm not so sure that this is a, a factual representation. It's the only one I can tell. But you notice how there's the tabernacle and then there's the, the holy place. And if you went inside behind those curtains there, that's the holy of holies, okay? That's kind of what we know about that. And, and where do you see a lot of the people right now? Kind of outside the tabernacle. Now they can see God in the presence of God, the pillar of cloud. Uh, they, they see all that. So they know that God is there. And yet, how many of the people do you see within the Holy of Holies? Zero. (laughs) They're on the outside. But God has a plan. John 10, 9. She said, I'm the door. Another version that your version might say, I'm the gate. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. And she'll go in and out and find pasture. We get God. Guys, we get God. We don't get a, a picture of God. Oh, there's some smoke over there. I can see the light in the distance through Jesus Christ and his work we get God my best way of understanding the whole book of Revelation is that we get God not because we've been good people not because they dunked us not because we signed up and we're a member of this church all those things can be good in, in their own place but we get God because Jesus Christ has died and, and we've said, okay, you are the only sufficient way that I will ever know, holy God. You're the only one that can forgive my sins. You're the only one that can redeem me. You're the only one that can be the, the one, one true mediator between me and holy God. And when we place our trust and our faith in him, not in morality, not in religion, but in Christ, the person in his work, the Bible says that we are the family of God. And we get God. There's gates here. It says that there's gates. But these gates are, are not gates just to, to kind of... That it says they won't shut at night. These gates are to let us in. And these gates are there for, for us to be able to experience the, the fullness of God. Go to Ephesians 2.13 because I really think this is probably what Paul was thinking about when he's writing Ephesians 2. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once were far off. How many of you were far off when it comes to the whole thing about Jesus Christ? Every single one of us. We weren't like, well, I was just a little bit off because, you know, my mom and daddy were... uh, you know, Christians. My grandmother and my grandfather were Christians. And, well, you know, my great-grandfather, he's actually a preacher. We were far off, guys. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And he continues to, to expand upon this. Verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are now fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You're no more wanderers. Now you have a place of permanence. 
You know the Bible says that if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you're already a citizen of heaven. Do you know that's what, how the Bible describes you? Not, okay, hope one day if I pass the test, I'm going to be a citizen. No, the Bible says if you're in Christ today, you are a citizen of heaven. Have you been to heaven yet? No. So you haven't experienced it. It's kind of like that young mom and that young dad. Okay, we're expecting maybe to come along. And nothing can quite, all the preparation, all the knowledge, all the good people that want to say, it's going to be like this, it's going to be like this. Nothing prepares you for that moment. They're going, hey, mom, you want to hold your baby? There's a reality to the experience of what you have hoped for and planned for. And this is our heaven. Paul said, so no longer you are strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the house of God. Built on what? The foundation of the apostles and prophets. Is he saying, okay, because of them, we have this hope. No, he says, what did the prophets and the, and the uh, apostles do? They preached the gospel. What's the gospel? The hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Because look what it says. Christ himself being the cornerstone. All they did is they went out there and they were just testifying to the truth of what God said about Jesus Christ. Verse 21. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Does it make sense now that we're being built into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit? The eventual reality of heaven that this is the bride of Christ. And yet this is the new Jerusalem. It's both. Do you see the order in all of this? I've said it countless times. Let me say it again. Our confidence does not come from knowledge of the plan, but in the one who makes the plan. And yet how many of us got tripped up by the plan last week? How many of you are battling because you're wondering about the plan for next week? So our confidence is, okay, it's going to be a good plan, God, if you do this, this, and this. Like the old joke about the country song. The guy played it backwards. And all of a sudden, his dog was alive, his wife came back, and he, you know, he had a happy life. And sometimes we think, okay, if all these circumstances just line up perfectly, then that's a good plan. a good plan, guys. He's got a good plan for your life. The fact that he would give you Jesus Christ, his son, to make you part of the family of God. This is a good plan. And this is where we put our hope. And that's the application I want to end with this morning. You see now why we need to go into verse 27. (laughs) We'd have been here for a while. And I hope I didn't belabor you this morning by, by trying to look and find a connection of how beautiful this permanence is. Because the truth is, we can go back to Hebrews 11.8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called out to go a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. How many of you, does that describe your life? I mean, at least in a hopeful way that, that you're hoping to that, but you're going out to a place not knowing where you're going. How many of that? Let me ask it that way. Does that fit your life? 
And by faith that God gave to Abraham, he went out, not knowing where he was going, but knowing that God had a plan and he had a permanence. Right now, you and I are we're dwelling in tents, physical tents. We're, we're in symbolic tents of just kind of we're nomads. And yet there's a day coming, guys, that we can put our hope in, a place of permanence. No more nomads, no more wandering, no more wandering. We just get to God. Hebrews 11, 9 and 10. By faith he went and lived in the land of promise. That's what our hope is. As in the foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs to him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Let that be our prayer this week. Father, we love you. We thank you, Father. And Father, this morning we thank you that uh, we still wonder how big heaven is and we'll look at that next week. Father, we'll begin to be overwhelmed with all the stones and the colors of the stones. And Father, all that's there and it's interesting. But Father, will you help us not to miss that all this description and all the things that we'll see in the balance of this chapter come down to one thing. Father, you have a plan and if you have a plan for our future Father I believe with all my heart that you have a plan for today because in one way Father I don't really need a plan once I get to heaven you already have the plan I'm going to be secure in that it's going to be permanent but Father right now I have wanderings I have wanderings I'm on a journey and I don't even know where I'm going but you do. So, Father, I come back not to confidence in the plan. I come back to the confidence in the planner. Will you give us the faith of Abraham? Will you speak to us like you did to Abraham? Go, Abraham. Stop, Abraham. Plant here. Will you direct us, Father, so that we truly can live holy lives, Father, committed to you, And that all of our wanderings that seemingly have no purpose now, that we can see how you're orchestrating that together to bring about your good and faithful will for our lives. Father, you're just working all things together for good. Father, for those that love you, will you help us to love you well this week and to trust your plan? But more than that, Father, to trust you, the planner. All these things we ask in the one that made it possible, Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.